And I invite you to turn with me this morning to the epistle, the Hebrews, chapter 11, we're in a new chapter, and just a little revision of the portion, we'll not be looking at verse 3, but the first two verses, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. And there the writer states, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Throughout the epistle, the writer has been concerned about the stability, the steadfastness of his reader's faith in Christ as the sole sufficient sacrifice for sin. He uses the word faith some 33 times in this letter. The words believe and believe, the total of two times. The words confidence and its cognate, confidently, five times. And the word trust, once, which means that as many as 41 times, he calls attention to this matter of trusting, of believing, of having faith in God. And as we've been seeing in previous studies, these Jewish believers in Christ were wavering in their profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were wavering because of the pressures of persecution, some of whom, some of them were on the verge of renouncing their faith in Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Hebrews 4, 2 and 3 are some of the passages in which the writer warns his readers of doing just that. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 and 14, as well as chapter 10 and verse 35, he encourages them to maintain their confidence in Christ as a soul sacrifice for sin. Then, what we notice as we go through the passage is that these Christians were to rest in Christ. They were not to be looking to other sources for their help, as far as their salvation, Christ was concerned. It was to be Christ and Christ alone. He reminds them in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, that the one God deems righteous, the one God holds as belonging to him, is the one who lives by faith. That such a person will not only come into life eternal by faith in Christ, but such a person will continue to exhibit a life of faith. If he shrinks back, the Lord declares, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And with this, the writer concludes in chapter 10 and verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back 
and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere, preserve their souls. Now, it's in light of this critical importance of faith that the author here in chapter 11 enters into this lengthy discussion of how faith factored in the lives of the Old Testament saints, enabling them to please God, thereby securing for them a good report. Hebrews chapter 11 has been characterized as the hall of fame of the heroes of faith. And here in this chapter, the writer is signaling to his readers the faith-oriented living that God expects of them. The fact that throughout biblical history, faith in God has ever been the underlying factor in the spiritual attainments of men and women of God. And as such, he's urging them to not be sluggish, but to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise of God as he had told them in chapter 6 and verse 12. And today, my friends, the critical importance of faith is laid out for you and me in the word of God. In fact, throughout the scriptures, among other things, we see in scripture that faith is foundational to one's coming into a saving relationship with God. Acts chapter 20 and verse 21 speaks of the need for repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In fact, Paul goes on to say, showing the importance of Faith in Christ for salvation, he says this, for in Christ Jesus, Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. In fact, so important is this matter of faith, of faith in God, of faith in Christ, that Faith, according to the word of God, is vital for our day-to-day living. So much so that any action, any decision that we would undertake that does not proceed from faith, Romans chapter 14 and verse 23, is sin. That in failing to believe God will not be established, according to 2 Chronicles 20, verse 20, as it is by faith that we stand, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 24. Now, given its vast importance, it follows that you and I should have some understanding of what faith is, what faith is all about. And it's not surprising then that here, in the very first verse of Hebrews chapter 11, the writer takes time out to set forth what we see in verse 1, and I've captured it, the characterization of faith, the characterization of faith. What is faith? He says there in verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, as far as we know, this is the only time in Scripture, the only place in Scripture that we are given 
some kind of definition or, as some would say, description of faith. Faith, we know, has God as its object. As such, we are commanded to have faith in God. Jesus declared in Mark chapter 11 and verse 22. We later learn in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God, says the writer, must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But here in verse 1, we also learn that it is of the nature of faith to have an outcome in view. As one looks to God in faith, one hopes for certain things to be realized. One hopes for certain things to happen. We trust God, the object of our faith, for an outcome, and that outcome constitutes what the writer describes here as things hoped for. But the question, of course, is how do we know that, how do we know whether exercising faith in God is not some kind of vague notion, some kind of vague fantasizing? How do we know that our exercising faith in God is not some empty, idle pipe dream? We see the definition or the description that's given us of faith in verse 1. That faith is not some kind of shallow fantasizing. That it is not make-believe, it is not auto-suggestion or mere wishful thinking, but that faith is both substantive and evidential. It is substantive and it is evidential. Look at the text. He says there now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Or as the King James Version puts it, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let's analyze the words here we have in verse 1. The Greek word that's translated assurance, hypostasis, is related to the idea of substance or essence or being. That which makes something an actual entity. It is a word that is used in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 where Christ is said to be the exact imprint or the exact representation of God's nature. Christ, in fact, if we were to substitute, if we were to read back this word, we would say in this verse, Christ is the exact image of God's hypostasis, of God's nature, of God's substance. So here in verse 1 of Hebrews 11, faith is set forth as being substantive. That is to say, it is something that is real. It is something that is not in the ether. It is something that is substantive. As one lexicon expresses it, in faith, things hoped for becomes realized or takes on reality. Interestingly, the etymology of this word, hypostasis, has the idea of standing under, hupo understasis, standing. 
And the idea here is that faith is the underlying support. It is the underlying support of those things for which we hope. In other words, faith provides solid, substantive grounds for our expectations, for our hopes, is what the writer is suggesting. And we can appreciate then why this very word, hypostasis, is the word that is used in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 14, where the writer says that we are to maintain our confidence. It's the very word that is translated confidence in Hebrews 3 and verse 14. So for the writer then, faith is not something that is purely mystical. It is not something, it is not some vague notion. It is not some mystical, vague, mystical idea, some vague, mystical notion, make-believe. It is something that is substantive. And as we're going to see now, it is something that is evidential. So let's consider these words. It is the conviction of things not seen. And the word that's translated here as conviction was a word that was used in connection with evidence or proof for some claim. The point here, as we said, is that faith then is evidential in nature. Faith, we would say, is its evidence. What is its evidence? The evidence of faith is the sure, infallible word of God, which tells us of unseen things, things which cannot be perceived with the natural sense. It is not perceptible by carnal senses. And yet it is real. It is real because it is grounded in the word of God. It is grounded in God's word, God who is trustworthy, God who is faithful, the God who cannot lie. As believers place their confidence, their trust in these unseen realities, their confidence is not some kind of fanciful thinking. Why? Because it is based on the sure, solid, unfailing, faithful word of the living God. Though unseen, these realities are credible, they are believable. Why? Because derived from God, they are disclosed in his word. That's the evidence. And the believer can have confidence in these unseen realities because, again, as we said, they are grounded in the character of God. They are grounded in the reality of who God is in terms of his trustworthiness, in terms of his faithfulness. This explains, here's the illustration in scripture, the fact that these unseen realities are grounded in the faithfulness of God. The God who cannot lie explains why in verse 7 that being Told, Abraham, we are told, by faith, obeyed God when he was called out to go to a place that he was to afterward receive as an inheritance, and he went out, here's what the word of God says, not knowing where he was going. Somebody would say, Abraham, you're crazy. You hear some, you get some impression, you hear some voice telling you to go some land you know not where. 
And the Bible says that Abraham got up, he left his father, Terah, he left his relatives, he took, of course, with him Lot, and he went, and even as he went, he did not know, he did not have an idea as to where he was going. Why could he do that? Because of the God in whom he trusted. This explains why Noah, verse 7. The word of God tells us, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. No wonder they must have thought him a madman. It never rained before. God spoke, God told him, Noah, you build an ark. There is coming a flood upon the earth. And Noah, we are told, went about building 120 years. Why could Noah do that? Because though unseen, he believed in the reality of the word of God, the God who cannot lie. This explains why even though the fathers of the faith died without receiving the things they were promised. Verse 13, here's what the word of God says. They nevertheless saw them and greeted them afar off. Yet they were trusting God. Somebody says, well, what became of those promises? In other words, here's the point. Their faith enabled them. To get a clear, vivid view of those unrealized promises which pointed to a far greater eternal blessing that was in store for them. That's why the word of God can tell us that Abraham, even as he wandered, even as he moved up and down the land of Canaan, he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Says Andrew Knowles, quote, none of these people saw the slightest, saw the fulfillment of God's plan, but they all lived in the light of it. He says at the end of his life, the only land Abraham owned was his wife's grave. And yet, he believed God was using him to build a city, a new community, to transform the world. It is of the nature of faith. In fact, that's what the writer is really establishing in this passage. That it is of the very nature of faith to believe God with respect to things that are unseen. Note also verse 27, which tells of Moses fearlessly, Moses fearlessly Face the wrath of fear. How was he able to do that? Here's what the word of God says, verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is what? Invisible. Bare naked faith. He moved on a principle of faith. The fact that God spoke, the fact that God's will was for him to lead Israel out of Egypt, that enabled him, my friends, to overcome the trepidation of facing the king in his rage, in his wrath. The Bible says he was able to endure 
for he endured as seeing him that is God who is invisible. The point of all these verses then is that faith makes vivid and real things that are unseen. But here's the point. Far from being some kind of, we would say, vague, nondescript notion, faith is grounded in reality. And the writer is making that very clear. Faith is not simply some vague, nondescript notion. As we said earlier, it is not some idle pipe dream, but faith is grounded in reality. Faith is substantial. Faith is evidential. And what is this reality on which faith is grounded? The reality consists, again, look at verse 1. The reality consists in things hoped for. And what are these things that are hoped for, not just any kind of hope? You see, that's the mistake today. That's the mistake many are making today, especially in some circles, where people can say they have faith, and they talk about possibility thinking, trusting God for great things, but really those things are coming out of their heads, and those things are unrealistic. People will say, trust God. God can make you whatever you want to be. God can make you have. God can make you rich. God can make you wealthy. But here's the point. The things that are hoped for, mentioned here in verse 1, are to be understood contextually. They are to be understood in the context of the Word of God, and more so, the book of Hebrews. So these things that are hoped are not just any kind of hope. For sure, this is not the hope of vague optimism. Man, I don't know, but I really hope she makes it. That's not the kind of hope he's talking about. No, this is not the hope of idle dreams. Again, the phrase... Things hoped for here in verse 1 concerns those promises, they concern those verities, those declarations, those promises of God that he has given us in his word. And such hope, Titus chapter 1 verse 2, derives from the God who cannot lie. So for example, one of the things that I hope for, according to Titus 1 verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Which means that you and I are well assured that all God's promises, all God's declarations given us in scripture are for real and will most definitely, most assuredly find fulfillment. They most definitely will be realized because once again, faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is not a wild, irrational fantasy into the unknown. Faith is grounded in the hope, the sureness, the certainty of the God who cannot lie. For all the promises of God in him, that is in Christ, find their yes in him. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. That is why you see in scripture, hope is never spoken of in a contingent fashion. Hope is never spoken of with some element of uncertainty, with some element of doubt. Hope in scripture means simply this, confident, assured expectation. And as we see from our text, it is faith which gives substance to hope. And such faith is not some kind of 
flight, irrational flight into the imaginary faith. Again, it's not some blind leap in the dark. Faith is not a matter of bringing oneself to believe something which is not actually true. It's what they call auto-suggestion. That's not what faith is. Faith is related, beloved, to that certainty which derives from the promises, the declarations of the word of God characterized as things hoped for, all of which are grounded in the character of God. So having looked at the characterization of faith, let's consider secondly the commendation of faith, the commendation of of faith. And we see the commendation of faith in verse 2, where the word of God tells us, For by, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. The people of old here would be who? The people of old here would be those men and women of the Old Testament era in ancient Israel who led exemplary lives in the area of faith. These would include Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 the fathers, that is the patriarchs, and the prophets. And that they received commendation by faith suggests that by the visible manifestation, the visible expression of their faith, the outward testimony they bore of their relationship to God, became, they became witnesses to the reality of the power of faith in God. The people of old, the writer is saying, shine as praiseworthy examples of those whose lives were inspired and directed by faith in God. By trust in God. Wherever that trust, wherever that faith might lead them. We're going to come to see some of the exploits of these men. Some of the things that they went through, which humanly speaking, naturally speaking were virtually impossible. And yet they were able to do that. Why? Because they were inspired by faith. They moved on the principle of faith and trust in God with respect to the unseen. Faith in God was their strength, their sustenance as they assumed, as they accomplished near impossible tasks for the Lord as they rendered extraordinary acts of obedience to the will of God, faith was their guiding, motivating impulse. Faith, we are reminded this morning, is preeminently, is first and foremost, concerned about faith in God with respect to things unseen. And this is the point that writer the Hebrews has been hammering home all along. And what he's particularly doing here in Hebrews chapter 11, he's reinforcing and he's pushing home to these readers that faith in the unseen, faith in God with respect to the unseen is really nothing new. This was how God has always worked in the history of redemption. God requires faith on the part of his people. And particularly faith with respect to the unseen. Why is this of tremendous importance to the writer? Well, think back again of the circumstances of his readers. The, the, the day they embraced faith in Christ, 
The day they came to trust Christ as their Savior, the, the day they came to see Christ as their high priest, when they left Judaism, when they left the temple, they turned away from the rituals, the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant. No doubt it meant for them excommunication from the temple. And one can only imagine that facing severe persecution, facing the kind of opposition they faced, perhaps they were beginning to think, you know, we don't have a temple. At least we can see the temple. We can't see our high priest. He, though this high priest Christ, he's in the heavens. How do we know for sure that he is the high priest that our preacher is telling us he is? At least we could touch those sacrifices. We could handle them, we could see them. There was a physical, literal temple. In a manner of speaking, we can imagine for them this was more appealing. It's the same today, right? People are more inclined, people are more inclined to accept even the area of worship, things that are appealing, visibly appealing. Today, people take pleasure in candles, they take pleasure in, 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 in smells, in whistles in all kinds of religious paraphernalia because if those things are not around, there must be a crucifix hanging somewhere or else they're not really worshiping God. And perhaps in the face of fierce opposition, these Christians were beginning to think that somehow we have really lost the real thing. We need to get back to the temple. We need to get back to our sacrifices because at least we see these things. We see our high priest. We don't see this high priest, Christ. We at least have sacrifices that we can offer. We can rest in these things. We feel better with these things. In any event, what the writer is saying to them in this chapter is, look, complete faith and trust in God. With respect to unseen realities, this is nothing new. This has ever been the will. This has ever been the purpose of God for his people throughout redemptive history. Indeed, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 38, my righteous ones shall live by faith. Remember last week, yes, Hebrews 10, 38, my righteous one shall live by faith. In other words, those who are really, my people are those who live by faith. The writer is hammering on this point to them. You need to have faith. You need to have faith in those things for which we hope because they're grounded in the reality, the trustworthiness of the word of God. Because God requires faith, because this is what he has required of his people from of old, from throughout redemptive history, you therefore need to give to yourselves to this matter of trusting God, of believing in him, of maintaining your confidence in him, even though you might not see him, what with all the persecutions, the oppositions, the temptations to turn back from him. You need to maintain your confidence in an unseen Christ and in the unseen realities which can only be accessed by faith. And beloved, this matter... As I close, this matter of faith in the unseen continues to be applicable to you and me in our time. You see, our default tendency, as I hinted earlier, 
is to more trust in what we can see than in what we cannot see. And that all relates to this one thing. It relates to what? It relates to our desire for control. People who want a religion, people who want a Christianity in which there are all kinds of religious paraphernalia hanging around. The smoke, the, 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 the bells, the, the things that, you know, the so-called sacred things. They do these things. Why? Because really at the base of it is a desire to manipulate, to control God. We're going to see as the writer of the Hebrews says, listen, look, the one who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a reward of those who diligently seek him, not to, not to seek things that point to him, but to seek him. But trusting in the living God we cannot see is something we find challenging, difficult. Trusting in the Lord God we cannot see, the living God we cannot see means taking him at his word even when our way is dark. Trusting God whom we cannot see means that even when our circumstances seem to be working against us, even when things seem to be falling apart, we trust him nevertheless even though we cannot see him. And this is part of what it means to let go and let God take control of our lives, which at times, of course, can be quite a challenge. This is ultimately part of what it means to live under the lordship of Christ. In closing, let me leave with you three key scriptures, three key scriptures which show the need for us to trust in the unseen. Three scriptures, and with these we close. Very important. First of all, John 20, verse 29. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus to Doubting Thomas. Jesus actually, if you follow the narrative, waited for this Doubting Thomas, especially for Doubting Thomas. And he shows up at the time when Thomas was present, because previously when Jesus showed up, Thomas was not around. And he singled out Thomas on this occasion. And he said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Here's what he told Thomas. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Here we have the Lord Jesus himself pronouncing a benediction, a blessing on those who would render to God implicit faith and trust. Jesus himself says this, the one who is truly blessed is the one who is able to trust God independently of sight, of props. That's what he's saying. The blessedness of faith in the unseen. Again, not a leap in the dark, but faith that is based on what God has said and who God is. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. And these verses are particularly applicable to those who might be undergoing real suffering, real suffering. 
of one kind or another. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, in fact, back up a little, he says, listen, though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. And that sounds fantastic, and it is true. We are aging, and as we are aging, the body is decaying, the outward man is perishing, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. But here's what Paul says, very interesting, which underscores the need for faith in the unseen. Here's what he says. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. While we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are what? Unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What Paul is saying here, look, in your moments of affliction, in your moments of deep trial, the thing that is going to sustain you is the understanding, is the conviction that there are unseen realities that are at work. God's purposes which are unseen and unknown. Somebody says, why am I going through all this? God has his purposes which are hidden to us, which are not necessarily known to us. The most we know is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him. And Paul says the way we are going to endure is that as we look at things that are unseen, not at the things that are seen, because if we look at the circumstances, if we look at what is dictating to us in terms of the finances in terms of the present crisis, we're going to what? Go into utter despair. We have to look and believe and trust God for the unseen. The last scripture I'm going to give you has to do with the importance of the unseen for fellowship with God. So I've given you the importance of the unseen with respect to the blessedness of such condition. Jesus himself Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. The importance of faith in the unseen for dealing with life's trials. And then thirdly, the importance of the unseen with respect to fellowship with God, communion with God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Peter is speaking of Christ. And he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We see here, beloved, the importance of faith in the unseen for love for Christ and for fellowship with Christ. You know, one of the things that make our private times or what we call our devotional times difficult. It's a discipline, you know. You know that very well. And part of what makes it a discipline, part of what makes prayer a discipline is to stay there and to talk to God and to have the firm belief, the firm persuasion that is real and is very much there. Peter says, even though you don't see him, you love him. And even though... You, don't, you, you do now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. 
and filled with glory. Though you do not now see him. And then the last verse. I think I missed one. <laughs> and so I just give you it without much comment. Second Corinthians 5 verse 7. That faith in the unseen is a principle of our Christian walk. For we walk by faith. Not by sight. Now faith is a substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Faith is not some fantasy. It is not fantasizing. It is not make-believe. It is substantive and it is evidential. And he says, by it the elders obtained a good report. God wills and God desires that we live by faith. For it is impossible to please him apart from faith. What's the message this morning? You're here and you're not saved. Maybe listening by way of Zoom, by way of the internet. Listen, you will never, never make it to God's heaven apart from faith in Christ. It's not your trying to be good. It is not your trying to be righteous. What gets a person to heaven, you see, is faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Not baptism, not faith in your baptism, not faith in your church membership, but faith in Christ. Not faith in your church, not faith in some priest, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a believer this morning, you are discouraged, you are floundering in your faith. Let this be an encouragement to you this morning, that the righteous shall live by faith. How did you, you came to Christ, how did you come to Christ? By faith. Well, continue to live by faith. The point is, don't let the anxieties, the depressions of life get to you. Trust in God. Even though you do not see him, love him and trust him. May God grant that these things might be so for his name's sake. Amen. Lord, how thankful we are that you have given us in your word ample evidences of the reasonableness of trusting in you, of placing our confidence in you, particularly in placing faith and trust in Christ, your Son, as our Savior. And we are thankful that you lead us from faith to faith, from faith beginning to faith end. Having saved us by faith, you enable us to live the Christian life by faith. We pray that the things we have heard this morning, you'll be able to, you'll help us to apply to our lives, especially when things seem to be going contrary against our senses. Help, Lord, that we would place our confidence in you, realizing that you can never fail nor disappoint. We thank you for these assurances. We pray now that you dismiss us with your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
number 724. soul by sin oppressed, there's mercy with the Lord, and He will surely give you rest by trusting in His Word. Only trust Him, only trust Him, only Lord, we are thankful that we can place our confidence in you. We can trust you even as we consider this morning. And even as we have been reminded by this great hymn, the benefit, the blessing of trusting in you. We come once again to worship you and we ask that in this hour, 
you would help us that we would maintain our focus on you we pray that you would speak to us once again through your word we ask that the words of our mouths the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight that as a result of our gathering in this hour you first and foremost would be exalted and then we would be edified thank you for hearing us thank you for being with us we ask these things in Jesus name Amen for consecutive reading we are reading Psalm 23 on Sunday afternoon so I'm going to read Psalm 23 well-known psalm the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters he restores my soul he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and for our reflection this afternoon, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 112, Psalm 112. And there in Psalm 112, we read, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away the desire of the wicked will perish we have in this psalm what we could describe as a portrait of the righteous man the person the individual the man the woman whom God deems righteous and such a person is described in verse 1 as blessed which among other things implies the privilege of divine favor it speaks of a state or, or condition of profound happiness, of fulfillment. And here in this psalm, we find at least five observations, five observations regarding the godly character of 
the person whom God deems righteous. And we'll look at each of these in turn. First of all, according to the psalmist, the godly character of the righteous is set forth in terms of his priority. A righteous man, according to this psalm, verse 1, is evidenced, is seen by his priority. Seen, is set forth in terms of his priority. We read there in verse 1, Praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greater delights in his commandments. That the priority of the godly is the Lord is evidenced by the fact that he fears the Lord. He fears the Lord. And this fear does not mean that he's afraid of God. It does not mean that he's terrified of God. The fear he has of the Lord doesn't mean that he regards the Lord with servile, cowardly dread. It's not the kind of fear that cringes. And while it certainly involves some measure of apprehension regarding the judgment of God, the fear of the Lord is not essentially that. It is not being afraid of God. You see, in and of itself, such kind of fear lacks real love for God. In fact, as a corrective to such fear, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 assures us, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. In scripture, to fear the Lord means this. It means to love and obey him. When a person fears the Lord, that person, out of reverence for God, fears God, yes, in the sense of loving God, in the sense of obeying Him. It means to regard God with deep awe, with deep reverence. And one does that recognizing Him as having the first place, as having the right to the first place in our lives. Now, among other things that will be true when we fear the Lord is that we will not fear man. In fact, the psalmist said, speaks of his trust in God, and then he says, What can man do to me? In the face of competing allegiances, the one who fears God will have a compulsion to first and foremost obey God. We ought, Peter says, to obey God rather than man, he said to the religious authorities. That is an example of the person who fears God. And when we fear God like that, when we put God above all else, when we put him before others in terms of our allegiance, when we fear him and not man, it shows then who is priority in our lives. Now, according to the psalmist, not only does the righteous prioritize as the Lord in his life, fearing the Lord, but notice, secondly, the righteous prizes the word of God. According to verse 1b, he's one who greatly delights in God's commandments. He is one who treasures the word of God, which according to 1 John 5 verse 3 means that he doesn't find the word of God to be burdensome. His commandments, the Apostle John says, are not grievous. They're not boring. Such delight the righteous finds in God's commandment is the delight of obedience. Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. This is a spirit in which the righteous person regards the word of God. He or she loves the word of God. He or she prizes the word of God. And here we see in this very first verse that the happiness of the righteous is very much related to his holiness. 
is very much connected to his fearing the Lord and conforming his life to the will and word of God. The godly character of the righteous then is seen in light of his priority. Who he is first in his life, what he values most, what he thinks of most for the righteous, the Lord and his word is preeminent in his life. The challenge for you and me this evening is this. Is that true in your life? Who is the priority in your life? And we know when God is priority in our lives because it means when he's first in our lives, we put him at the place of priority. We recognize his lordship. We put him above all else. We obey him first and foremost. That is what it means to have the Lord as priority in our lives. According to the psalmist, then, the godly character of the righteous is seen not only in his priority, but is seen secondly in terms of his posterity. In terms of his posterity. Notice verse 2. His offspring will be mighty in the land. That the generation of the upright will be blessed. He's talking about the offspring. He's talking about the descendants of the godly. Something can be known of a godly person by their posterity. Now it's not always true. Because we know of course there are godly men in scripture who had children who were not good. Children who were delinquents, children who were just horrible. We think of David with Absalom. We think of Eli and his, uh, having his sons who were renegades, who were just immoral, wicked men, the Bible says. So it's not at always true that the godly has right, have, have righteous children. But more often than not, it is the case that where persons are righteous and godly, where persons are serving the Lord, their children can be expected to likewise fear and serve the Lord. There was a study that was carried out on two, two Americans many years ago, men who lived in the 18th century. And one of them you will recognize by name. His name was Jonathan Edwards. One such person was Jonathan Edwards. The other was a man by the name of Max Jukes. Max Jukes, we are told, was a drunkard, and he was reputedly not God-fearing. Of 1,026 of Jukes' descendants who were studied by a sociologist, 300 were found to have died prematurely. 100 were convicted criminals, 100 became prostitutes, 100 drunkards, of course some of the uh, round, round, rounded numbers. By contrast, of the 720 descendants, 720 descendants of Jonathan Edwards, 300 became preachers, more than 100 were lawyers and judges, 75 were military officers, 65 became college professors. 13 were university presidents, 60 became authors, and 3, it is said, were United States congressmen and one vice president of the United States. And these statistics certainly does say something of the positive impact of the godly, of the righteous on the upbringing and later direction of their children. 
It can be expected that where there are godly families, there will be godly children. Where there are godly children, there are going to be children who grow up to be men and women of God. Once again, it is not always so, sadly. But more often than not, where there is spiritual direction in a home, where godliness is promoted, where husband and wise parents are godly, living for God, leading exemplary lives for God, bringing up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, more often than not, these children become godly men and women. God has a way of extending his grace to family members of godly individuals in this regard. As we read in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7 says this, The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Psalm 25, verses 12 and 13, Who is the man who fears the Lord? His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. In fact, in Psalm 37, verse 26, regarding the steps of one who, the man whose steps are established by the Lord, his children become a blessing, we are told there. Henry Law says of the posterity of the righteous, quote, the godly seed truly inherit the earth. It may be that gold and silver may not sparkle in their homes, but they are endowed with the treasures of peace and joy compared with which Earthly possessions are an empty show. The world may scorn them, but they are kings and priests unto God. The godly man, the righteous man, is set forth here in this psalm, not only in terms of his, his, his priority, who comes first in his life, what takes precedence in his life, but in terms of his posterity, his offspring, his children, his grandchildren. On the third place, according to the psalmist, the godly character of the righteous is set forth in terms of his prosperity. Look with me at verse 3, his prosperity. Wealth and riches are in his house. Verse 9c, his horn is exalted in honor. Now this is not to be taken as a general rule, Right? It's not everyone who serves God, we know that, not everyone who is godly is going to be financially prosperous. There, there are teachings to that effect today, and we know, of course, that nothing could be further from the truth. This is not to be taken as being universally true for every person who is serving God. Particularly in the Old Testament, material wealth was generally regarded as a reward for one's piety, for one's faithfulness to God. But beyond that, notice the second half of this verse. The second half of this verse, that is verse 3, suggests that the prosperity of the godly is not essentially in his material wealth. Because notice what he says there in the B part of verse 3. His righteousness endures forever. Not his wealth. Not the riches he has, not the things he possesses. We see here that substantially greater than physical wealth, than material wealth, is his spiritual wealth, the fact of his righteousness. And here's the point. That's the only thing we take with us when we leave this world. It is our relationship with God. It is not what we have. 
It is often said we never see attached to a hearse a U-Haul truck. Now that saying is basically trite, but the principle is this, that we do not take with us the things we possess in this life. Spiritual wealth, on the other hand, is eternal, founded as it is upon the righteousness of God, which is first and foremost based on right relationship with God. The righteous person prospers, particularly in the area of his soul, his relationship with God. And so it is, 3 John verse 2, the Apostle John, as he greets Gaius, you remember there in 3 John verse 2, John says to Gaius, I wish, beloved, that above all things you would prosper and be in good health, even as your soul prospers. Here's the point. If one has all the wealth in the world and is not right with God, if one has all the wealth in the world and does not possess the righteousness of God, then, then everything he is, everything he has, adds up to a big fat zero. And this reminds us of what our Lord Jesus said. Remember in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he says, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? As taught in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we take none of our earthly possessions with us when we leave this world, for we brought nothing into the world, Paul says, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And that is why against the background of the tendency to cravingly pursue material wealth, Paul counsels Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. He says to Timothy, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and so on and so forth. In other words, Timothy, seek and pursue the things that are eternal. And we need to learn that especially in our time. This is a materialistic age. And if we're not very careful, especially as time becomes more difficult, what we find happening to ourselves is that we take the focus of God and we tend to think that our lives consist in the things we have and the things we amass. Yes, we are to save. Yes, it's important to have things, but we must recognize, as the Word of God says, that our true lives, our true identity does not consist in these things. The godly man, notice verses 4, 5, and 9, is rich in good works. Verse, as we saw in verse 3, he's wealthy in material goods. But here in verses 4, 5, 9, he's rich in good works. Beginning in the B part of verse 4, we read he's gracious, merciful, righteous, Verse 5, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Here the emphasis is on his generous, benevolent spirit. The fact of his being sensitive to the plight of the needy. Those who are in need, he avails his resources so as to relieve them, to give them relief, to help them in their need. We notice in verse 4 that his kindness is extended to the poor, which constitutes part of what it means for him to be righteous. Such kindness, the Bible tells us, he extends freely, that is, lavishly, in a scattering fashion. It's like a farmer sowing seeds. The seeds are just strewn lavishly as he goes along. That's the idea here behind the word freely. 
Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 verses 8 through 11 uses this verse, this verse here in, in Psalm 112 concerning the, the, this righteous man giving. And Paul uses this portion to make the point that God uses one's generosity to those in need to enhance one's good works and righteousness. In fact, in a similar vein, he instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Here's what he says, verse 18, They are to do good, they are to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So we have here the idea of being rich in good works. In the fourth place, the godly character of the righteous is seen against the backdrop of his protection. His protection. The righteous is under the protection of God. His security is in the Lord, verses 4 through 6, as well as verse 10. Listen to these verses. Verse 4b, light shines in the darkness for the upright. Verse 5a, it is well with the man who deals generously and lends. Verse 6, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Ultimately, in verse 8, he looks with triumph on his adversaries. Why? That man is under divine protection. It reminds us of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? When we have God on our side, we are under his protection. Now, here's what it does not mean when you're under God's protection. You know this very well. It does not mean that people cannot hurt us. It doesn't mean that adversity cannot befall us. But when we are under God's protection, here's the point. Nothing or no one touches us except as he wills, except as he permits. And the essence of these verses we have read, verses 4 through 6 as well as verse 10, speaking of the protection of the righteous, we could translate as follows. God has the back of the righteous. He has their back. He has them protected. Even in dark circumstances, he reserves light for them. He looks to their well-being. He looks to their security is the, is the message of these verses. Then verse 10, the wicked man sees it. Sees what? The C part of verse 9 is exaltation. The fact that his horn is exalted in Scripture. The horn is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of strength. The Word of God is saying here, God blesses this man with power, with strength, with favor, with honor. And what is the reaction of the wicked? The wicked sees it. And is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Happy is that man whose trust is in the Lord. Because he is under divine protection. God has his back. God has him covered. And no evil can befall him. Unless God so permits. The wicked cannot touch him. Unless God permits. What a comfort. You and I have. But then fifthly, the righteous man 
In terms of his godly character, his godly character is set forth in terms of his peace. Look at verses 7 and 8. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. Arthur Pink has some very nice words here as he describes what is going on here with this man being at peace with God or this woman being at peace with God. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. And Pink says this, quote, The one who truly fears the Lord fears not man. And his heart is preserved from those trepidations which so much disturb the rest and so often torment the wicked. No, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. He shall have neither alarming anticipations of such, nor be dismayed when they actually arrive. And why not? Because his heart is fixed, trusting the Lord. He says, rumors do not shake him. Nor does he quake when they are authenticated, for he is assured that his times are in the hand of the Lord. Psalm 31, 15. And therefore, he is kept in peace. That is, the holy privilege of the saints in times of acute stress and distress to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. End quote. Now I want to tell you, based on the suggestion of Scripture, why this man, the godly righteous man, is at ease even in the face of of bad news. Why isn't he afraid of bad news? First of all, because you see, he does not have the kind of peace and security that the world offers. He has that kind of peace, that supernatural peace that derives only from God. This is the kind of peace our Lord Jesus spoke of in, my, in John chapter 14, verse 27, when he says this to his troubled disciples. He says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He says, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. The Bible talks about the peace of God. That is to say, the peace that derives from God, the peace that comes from God. And he says what? It passes all understanding. And he says that peace is a peace that will guard, that will garrison your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This man is not afraid of bad news because he has the peace of God. The peace that only God can impart. Second, the righteous man is not afraid of bad news because this peace of God rules his heart. This peace of God umpires his heart. In fact, that's the language of the Greek word rule. Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let it umpire your hearts. Let it be the controlling factor in your heart and life. And third, the righteous is not afraid of bad news because he's in tune to the word of God. He's in tune to the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 165. Here's what the word of God says. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them afraid. 
Nothing can make them afraid. Let's see how this works. You see, the word of God has a perfect handle on all of life's circumstances. So that those who are delighting in the word of God, those who are trusting in the word of God, are able to have peace, not just in good times, but even in bad times. Why? Because the word of God gives information, the word of God gives us inside information, if so to speak, on the truth concerning our sufferings, the truth concerning our trials. Faith in God and his word, says John Gill, has a tendency to establish the heart and make it fearless. It makes us completely calm and afraid, unafraid, even in times of bad news. That is the blessing the word of God gives. Listen to what the word says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 33. Whoever listens to me, Wisdom is speaking, the wisdom of God's word. Whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. It is a person who knows the word of God, who knows what the word of God teaches, who knows that God is in control, is the kind of person who will not be startled, who will not be terrified of bad news, of rumors of wars, and so on and so forth. Isaiah 26 verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in you. And we can trust God as we saw this morning based on what he has disclosed in his word. This man does not fear bad news because notice what is said of him there. His heart, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm. Doesn't mean he has a hard heart. No, that's not what it means. The next word, word it helps us to understand because he used a synonym in the A part of, ver, of, of, the, of um, the verse 8. Not only is his heart firm, verse 7b, but his heart is steady. The idea is this, that his heart is not wobbly. His heart is steady. And what is the controlling factor in the steadiness of his heart? Look at what the text says. Because he's trusting in God. He's trusting in God. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. He's not afraid of bad news. Verse 7. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. Verse 8. He will not be afraid. This peace of the righteous man is not a peace that's dependent on favorable circumstances. It's not a peace that is dependent on sunshine circumstances. This peace is not dependent on beautiful happenings. Because as noted, noted in verse 4a, even in dark circumstances, the righteous experiences light. He's not without times of darkness. Is not without times of trials and adversities. But as verse 4 tells us, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. What does this remind us of? Remember when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt and one of the plagues was darkness upon the land. And whereas there was darkness over the whole face of the earth, darkness in homes, in the homes of the Israelites, there was what? Light. 
light shines, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. Now, in closing, let me say this, that yes, we can apply this psalm to our lives, but if we look at the psalm very closely, the various statements we have in this psalm regarding the righteous man find their expression in one person in the most perfect sense, and that is who? The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Indeed, he's wealthy. Wealth and riches are in his house, such that God blesses us in him that is in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 tells us. We were needy, we were poor, and out of the abundance of his riches, out of the abundance of his grace, he extended generosity to us, he extended his grace to us, he came to where we were in our misery, in our poverty, and he lifted us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, although he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. He supplies our every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. And then what of his generation? What of his posterity? He said, what are you talking about? His generation will be mighty, will be blessed, that it will be so is hinted at in Isaiah 53 verse 11 because in that passage dealing with the suffering Savior, the prophet Isaiah says of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ensuing from his atoning suffering, his death, his suffering and death would be his causing many to be accounted righteous. And today we see his mighty generation. Where, where is his mighty generation today in the church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? A mighty army, ever moving, ever advancing. So we must see at the end of the day the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the truly righteous one. He is the godly one. He is the wealthy one. He, he was the one who came in grace to us in our poverty and ministered to us generously of his saving grace. Isaac Watts summarizes this beautiful psalm with a hymn of his. And he basically takes the word of Psalm 112 and puts them in the following hymn. And I'll read it for you. Thrice happy man who fears the Lord, loves his commands and trusts his word. Honor and peace his days attend and blessings to his seed descend. Compassion dwells upon his mind to works of mercy still inclined. He lends to the poor some present aid or gives them not to be repaid. When times grow dark and tidings spread that fills his neighbors round with dread. His heart is armed against the fear for God with all his power is there. His soul well fixed upon the Lord draws heavenly courage from his word. Amidst the darkness light shall arise to cheer his heart and bless his eyes. He hath dispersed his arms abroad, his works are still before his God. His name on earth shall long remain, whilst envious sinners fret in vain. We have in this psalm a portrait of the godly man. 
He's a man who enjoys prosperity, not just material prosperity, but prosperity of soul. He's a man whose posterity is blessed. He's a man under divine protection. And perhaps most important, certainly most important, he's a man who is known by his priority. He fears the Lord and he prizes and honors the word of God. May these things be true in your life and mine, for his name's sake. Amen. And we close this afternoon with number 